Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, hello, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. I hope you're good wherever you are. I have a great show for you today. Ahmed Naji is my guest. He is a writer, he's a journalist, he's an art critic, and he's a criminal. He's from Egypt, and he is the author of several books, uh, perhaps most notably and most infamously, a novel called Using Life, which was published back in 2014. He has won uh, multiple prizes in his young career, including the Penn Barbie Freedom to Write Award. So for those of you who are, un who are uh, unaware, back in 2016, when he was 31 years old, Ahmed Naji was uh, arrested and charged in Egypt for writing a novel, essentially. And in a nutshell, what happened is that a reader in Egypt read an excerpt from his work and claimed injury as a result. This is like a 65-year-old man who read an excerpt of Using Life and uh, claimed emotional and even physical injury. Using Life is a blend of uh, existentialist literature and fantasy and social criticism. It also functions as a depiction of Egyptian youth culture right around the time of the Arab Spring. It uh, features a kind of alternate version of Cairo as a city that has been leveled by a series of natural disasters and so on and so forth quite obviously a work of the imagination. It's a fiction. And uh, this uh, gentleman, this 65-year-old gentleman in Egypt, read it and was so badly wounded by it and took so much exception to it that he brought a case against Ahmed Naji and against the editor of Akbar al-Adab, which is essentially like the Cairo Review of Books. And Akbar al-Adab is where the excerpt ran. Ahmed Naji was charged, he was convicted of uh, violating public morals, and he was imprisoned, sentenced to two years in prison for writing a work of fiction. So obviously this is the stuff of dystopian nightmares, you know, for, uh, for any writer out there, to be jailed for creating a work of literature, of all things. And to have to spend time in prison for making up a story. 
So uh, Ahmed Naji's unjust incarceration uh, became a cause celeb, both uh, in Egypt and elsewhere. And it's worth noting that in the history of the Egyptian criminal justice system, this had never happened before. Nobody had ever gone to prison for gross violation of public decency until this case, until Ahmed Naji was put in jail. And uh, many people rallied to his cause in the literary community and among people who are advocates for freedom of expression. A host of writers wrote uh, like a letter in his defense, including Salman Rushdie, Zadie Smith came to his defense, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and so on and so forth. Efforts uh, were made to secure his release via legal channels, public and diplomatic pressure, and eventually, after 10 months behind bars, Ahmed Nanji was released from prison. Over the past uh, couple of years or so, he has been living in the United States in Las Vegas with his family as a City of Asylum fellow at the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. He and his work and his ordeal came to my attention via The Believer magazine, which this month is running an excerpt from a new memoir that Naji has written about his time in prison and the ordeal that he has suffered through. The book is called Rotten Evidence, reading and writing in prison. And Ahmed Naji is in the process of trying to find uh, literary representation and an English language publisher to translate the text of his uh, excellent memoir. What I've read of it is riveting. You should check it out in The Believer if you haven't already. So I hope that gives you uh, an overview for the conversation you're about to hear. I love talking with Ahmed. It was great to meet him. It was uh, stunning to learn about all that he has been through. And I think you're going to enjoy hearing from him. So without any further ado, here he is, folks. This is Ahmed Naji. I wasn't raised in Egypt, actually. I was raised all over uh, place in several states, including Libya and Kuwait. I was born in Egypt in a city called Mansoura, which is like, two-hour driving by car north from Cairo. And I grew up in Libya, then my family moved to Kuwait. My my father was a doctor. Um, so I only come back to Egypt when I was in high school. I lived also in Mansoura when I was in high school. Then, then for university, in Egypt we go early in university. Like I went to university when I was 16 years old. And uh, I moved to Cairo, and since 16 years old, I used to live to live alone in in Cairo. Uh, I studied journalism there. Then I started to work on Literature News Magazine, which is like a weekly Arabic uh, magazine that focuses on literature and art. It's called and, uh, It's called Akbar Al Adab, correct? Yes, right. Uh, then everything went from that point to to unknowing places. I published my first novel in at age of twenty two, and uh, which is which is called uh, Rogers. Yes, exactly, and uh, it was translated into Italian language, and uh, I got like a lot of positive feedback from it. Uh, but then I focused on my career as a journalist 
and uh, filmmaker. I made like a lot of documentary movies and my journalist career, I mean, then the revolution happened in 2011 and everything changed from then. Okay, so first of all, like it's not necessarily the most likely story that you wound up writing at all. You come from a family of physicians. Right. So was there any pushback in your family when you started, or that you decided to pursue journalism in school? Of course, they, they didn't understand it. And they dealt, they dealt with me as a loser until I published my first novel. And then I started to make interview and some of this interview was in TV. So suddenly I was appearing in TV. So my father friends will call him and tell him, yeah, your son in TV. So suddenly they started to recognize that I'm doing something. But for my family, it's not even like my father and my my father. It's my father, all my sister and brothers, all my uncles, their son, their daughters. The whole family is like uh, a big hospital, really. Everybody's doctors. Everybody's doctors, and they we have like all the specialists. Like before moving to the state, I don't remember or recalling going to any uh, uh, doctor that is not my in, in my family or relative. That's great, though, if you have a problem. Yes, exactly. So it's it's it was like a big shock coming here to to United States and dealing with the health insurance system, and like becoming like a, a regular citizen. Yeah, well, yeah, our healthcare system uh, leaves uh, a lot to be desired. I almost feel bad for people who come from places where they have better access and they suddenly have to deal with this like Byzantine nightmare <laughs> system that we have. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I have a lot of stories and nightmares about it. So you, you know, I think you, you touched on it a little bit um, a second ago, but in particular, as a young man in your 20s, you were undecided on which direction exactly you wanted to take in your life uh, professionally. And you have, maybe you probably, you still have a variety of creative interests. You were doing documentary films. Um, you're, you're a journalist. You're writing fiction. Um, is that it? Is there anything? I want to say there are other things you were doing too, Correct. I, I really now, like, sometimes I don't remember, but, like, I, sometimes I have a flashback. Oh, my God, did I do this? Like, uh, lately, me and my wife were watching, like, Mid Men for the first time. And I, I remember suddenly that I worked for several months in, in advertising, for example. Um, and as you said, like, when you are young, you just, like, you are hungry. You are hungry for experience and meeting new people and reading and watching movies and uh, keep trying, keep trying different things. Um, I didn't have any responsibility back then, so I felt a little bit free. I I was also active in like the blogosphere community uh, that started to raise in Egypt and in Arab world after 2005. So I got involved into politicals and and like blogging. Um, and actually, it was because of my blogging that I first came and visited United States in 2008. Basically, I was invited because of my blogs 
to uh, cover the presidential election, American presidential election in 2008. So, wait, 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 say, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Cover it? Were you at the conventions, or did you were you here like for the election itself? Well, yeah, we 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 didn't follow the campaign, but because our project was all, was mainly focusing on like the social aspect. You know, in 2008, it was like Obama era and it was hope. So basically, we went to several states like Austin, Texas, Nebraska, uh, Atlanta, New York, D.C. And we will mainly focus on like youth community, especially in university. Uh, like we will film and write about like the Republican community in university and the Democratic community and how like... Uh, the campaign is working, especially like in in university and colleges, cities like Austin, Texas, uh, for example. So it wasn't like a documentary or blogging, focusing on what like Obama will say or McCain will say, but how like American people and especially the new generation uh, is dealing with it. So I, I want to recall, uh, I, I want to say, if uh, my recollection is correct, that sh- one of the first foreign visits that Obama made after he was elected was to Egypt, and he made a speech at the university in Cairo. Am I remembering yes, that? Yes, I was there. You were there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I remembered that. For some reason, that <laughs> yes, stands right. out in my memory. Yeah. It, it, it was a big thing back then, and um, everyone did with it as a new era. <clears throat> and yeah, it 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 pushed for a new era two years after this visit, and we started to have revolution and and all over the Arabic countries taking over, and we started to have the Arabic Spring. Yeah, I was going to say that like I'm just tracing the um, biographical line of your life. You're born in 1985, correct? Right. And then you're 22 years old, which. Uh, when you published Rogers, your first novel, and that would put us at, oh God, 2007? Yes. And right. that is, you know, a year before Obama takes office. By this point, you were working as a journalist and an author. And exactly. you kind of find yourself at this point in Egyptian history and in the history of the Middle East in general, where there are a lot of changes or a lot of, I guess, a lot of hunger for change is brewing, um, you know, below the surface. It seems like an interesting, it just seems like an interesting confluence of events with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, but like you see both two lines, the personal line and the public line is mixing. Like we were just talking about how like I was a little bit disoriented and you keep trying everything because during this time, during this era under Mubarak regime, everything was was so under control and the roof was very low. Like, for example, if you and a bunch of your friends want to start like a media project, let's say doing even a simple project like having a podcast on the Internet. So you must get a lot of license and permission and the big permission you must get like the national security permission which is like the the secret service or the fbi or something like that and of course they will not give you this permission uh, so all your dreams when you are try to imagine and dream like to work on your career a career to go big to go big 
all the gate uh, keys are in their hands and they will not let it open to you and this is like was the important and the power of the internet because the internet suddenly gave access for millions of people including me to educate themselves to learn facts and reality about like the countries that they are living in and and the world and to work and to use the internet tools to improve themselves and to found themselves and to express themselves and their ideas and to open conversation with the world and with their other colleagues. Yeah, you know, it's interesting thinking back on that time when, um, you know, there were the demonstrations in Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring was unfolding, how much excitement there was around uh, social media and Facebook in particular as a tool that protesters were using to organize. And it's, you know, you, you fast forward a decade and it's a, uh, it's funny how the pendulum has swung with regard to Facebook and the role it has played uh, in the United States as, um, you know, a disseminator of disinformation and an anti-democratic force in a lot of respects. But for you guys in Egypt at that particular time, it was an invaluable tool. And the internet in general, like you said, was, um, was kind of revolutionary in terms of people um, having access to self-education that didn't previously exist. Yes, and now what we have that the regimes in Middle East, and I think all over the world, they learn it how to deal with American companies and how to deal with internet. So they started to to buy all this censorship program from Israel and from Europe uh, to censorship and block websites. Like Egypt before didn't have the ability to block websites, but now they are a, they have the ability to block websites and uh, to trace like people uh, Facebook and American company totally cooperating with like dictator and, and regime in Middle East like yeah if like if you try to write anything is like negative against CC on on Facebook Facebook like pff, will ban you for 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 like three days or seven days and if you continue writing negative things about the regime or critiquing them they will continue ban you and if you live in Egypt they will give the government and the security your information so and there is many cases like of young kids who will be like doing live videos on Facebook and suddenly when they are doing the video live the national security will broke their house doors and they will arrest them um so yeah it's it's totally a new world that we live in comparing to what we have um, 10 years ago yeah and i think for people listening it's you know it's i'm imagining uh, at least going to be predominantly a western audience just because i'm based here in the states uh, you know a little bit of egyptian political history you mentioned mubarak earlier who was the um president at the time of the arab the dawn of the arab spring and the demonstrations in Tahrir square and then over the past decade, there have been a succession of three more presidents, I believe, uh, if I have my history correct. It was Morsi, and then Mansour, and now you mentioned Sisi, who right. is, is currently in charge and um, you know, is a dictator. Is that, is that the proper characterization? Yeah, as Mr. Obama gave him this title, his title is my favorite dictator. That was 
what Trump used to call him. Uh, and he was totally proud about this nickname. Uh, so, yeah, he's he's dictator and the proud of that. Yeah, because there was all this hope, I think, that there was going to be a transformation. I think uh, clearly down in the streets in Tahrir at the time of the Arab Spring, it was this idea that there would be a democratic revolution. But uh, then, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how the political system and the electoral process well, unfolds. But simply, simply to, to symbolize uh, everything, like, yeah, we had the revolution, we take Mubarak down, but Mubarak was the head of the regime, but he wasn't the regime. The, the hard core of the regime that it's a military regime. We, for more than 50 years, we are ruled by military, by army regime. And what is what is making it hard to to resist and to find against this regime, basically because they have gone and tanks, and their money is not coming from taxes. Uh, their money is coming mainly from borrowing money from Western uh, uh, countries or from aids that they receive freely from United States. You see, the Egyptian army is the second army after Israel who's receiving a yearly aid from from United States each year uh, the, the Egyptian army received like billion and a half uh, dollars military aid from United States and this is freely without any condition uh, so basically resisting and fighting against such regime you end up not only like fighting like the military and the general you found you fight against uh weapons companies lobbyists in dc for example who supported this regime and who will like talk about now how such like military regimes in middle east and egypt they bring stability and they are fighting against terrorism extra 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 so yeah we had we take down mubarak we had we still have the military we did the election the election we ended up with a Muslim Brotherhood government called Mohammed Morsi, but then Mohammed Morsi he believed that he have like totally support from from Hillary Clinton and Obama back then, but so he started like to do like constitution change without caring about people opinion. People who started to go against him, the military moved, the military take him down with support from Saudis and the Emirati. And then since 2014, we have General Sisi uh, as a president. The country is totally backward. It's like it's even like worse than Mubarak time. At least in Mubarak time, there was like um, a limits for human rights violation. There was like election. But under Sisi, really, there is no election. There is no space in participating. Uh, there is no hope. Uh, it's so dark now. Well, and President Sisi, it's worth noting, was a general in the military, or is a general. Exactly. So it's exactly. basically like the it's like what we're seeing unfold uh, in Myanmar right now, where the military uh, junta is is reassuming power, and um, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, has just been removed. You know, so now you have Sisi in power, and that basically is the assertion of the military's control of the political system. Exactly, you bought it right, except like in the Myanmar army, they will back up by the Chinese government and our military dictator will pick up by American government and European governments. 
And the motivation is stability. The Western democracies that are supporting a military dictatorship in Egypt are doing so, even though it's uh, contradictory to the supposed values of Western democracy. Every country country and every politician has a reason. Like for Europe, he's been like buying a lot of weapons, billions of weapons from Europe. So basically what, what usually they will do, when Sisi, for example, will plan a visit for France, before going there, they will go and buy, for example, like three million with three billion dollars woman from France. Okay, so when we arrive in France, yeah, the the newspaper and the media will criticize him because of the human rights file in Egypt. But on the other hand, he just like paid like three million. So Macron will praise him and will 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 welcome him and so on. He also will go with European country. He also will keep threatening European country with things like, you know, if I fall down, the Egyptian will immigrants through the Mediterranean to your doors. And and the same, like they creating like this dilemma on, on the front of Western media that I am here and I'm a dictator because I protect you. I create stability and I protect you. I protect Israel. I keep peace. I fight terrorism. I am your truly ally. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so with that as sort of the backdrop to your you know, early adult life and the beginning stages of your career as a journalist and an author. Um, I want to talk next, if I'm following the timeline more or less correctly, about uh, blogging a bit more. Because while you were a staff writer at uh, Akbar al-Adab, which for people listening is an arts and culture uh, review based in Cairo that, uh, you know, I think has been compared in some of the things I've read to like the Cairo review of books, um, mm-hmm. you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so you were writing kind of traditional journalistic pieces for Akbar al-Adab. And then you were also blogging pseudonymously. Um, you had a blog called Shadow Puppet. Is that correct? Yes. And so yes. what were you doing there? Can you describe what the what you were doing at Shadow Puppet and how it differed from what you were doing um, in your day job? Well, as as a writer, I started to to develop this passion towards words and and writing and literature, 
And the thing, like when you work as a journalist, there is a formula. There is many things that you can see, say, and you can't say. And I wanted to to be more free. I wanted to be free in using the words, on using all the slangs, uh, and using different level of language. So this was the main reason why I started my my blog is to experimental with with language and aim to to reach out to reach um, to my my language that I want to work and use. So basically, my my idea back then is mixing like the traditional language, the language that we read in newspaper and in, you know like in sophisticated culture magazine, with the street language, with the daily language and the slang and so on. Um, and of course, this wasn't this wasn't um, acceptable at. Uh, at, at the newspaper, so that's why, like, I had to come up with uh, the blogs. Okay, so let me ask you about the blogging at the particular time that you were doing it. This would have put you in what two thousand five, six, seven, eight? Is that the like what were the year range? Because I'm just curious to know if a writer today in Egypt could do similar things online? Could you blog without fear of penalty? Uh, or is the blogosphere monitored in the same way that social media is monitored? Uh, I, I really don't know. Like, I left Egypt, it's been like three or four years now. But yeah, I think like, if you want to do things, if you want to do a thing, you, you could still hide your identity. Um, kids now in Egypt, they are using... Uh, many channels to 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 express themselves safely, and it's a funny that they are using the channels that the right wing in, here in America are using, like for example, Four Chain and Eight Chain, which is like right wing platforms here in the United States. But in Egypt, for example, it will be platform that young kids will use it to communicate and to express themselves freely, uh, and like out of the reach of out out of the government hand reach and so um you, you there's a great story you tell about you know writing this blog doing it secretly um under a different name and then being discovered by one of your co-workers at akbar al-adab who somehow figured out that it was you I, i'm still amazed by that i'm sure you are too <laughs> Yeah, uh, she her name is Mansoura Azeddin, who's like an amazing writer. All of her work been translated into English and different other language, and she's she's very smart and good reader. And she only got this guess this got this guess through like reading the blog. Like I remember it very well. We were riding the elevator together to the work, and suddenly she looked at me and she was like, "You are the blogger." X and yeah I am and then we started to have a friendship and actually when I when I I wrote my first novel she was the one who like I gave her the draft and she was the first reader who read it and convinced me well this is great this is an amazing novel and you should publish it and she was the first one who encouraged it and put me in touch with with publisher who found it interesting novel and and publish it hmm. 
So I want to say, I might be, I think I'm quoting you from something you've written where you said, like anybody who gives a shit about the public good in Egypt, I had expected to go to prison at some point. So this is just kind of an expectation. I think when you, when you said that you were probably imagining being detained as a result of being out in the streets, protesting or expressing um, some form of civil disobedience, but you probably did not imagine that it would happen as a result of writing fiction. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I I was so bold about like what I am writing, criticizing the regime and about my political activity. So I was ready. Like I know, like it it could happen to anyone, including me. Um, but I didn't imagine it will come because of my fiction writing because on the other hand like yeah i was i was a journalist and uh, i was well known in my generation and i had a little bit of fame uh, but my fiction and literature writing like i used to deal with it as a secret thing because it's totally different style uh it's harsh my novels is not like an easy best-selling novels uh, you know like it's not a liner uh, novel uh, the narrative is is always divided there is always playing games in forum and narrative my first novel was mixing like the writing text with Pink Floyd album music the wall my second novel using life I was mixing the text with comics so basically you will be reading the novel as a normal novel and suddenly there will be like uh, a comics page a ten, a 10 pages of comics connected to what we are saying. Like, let's say, like I'm telling you, the character opening the door and you turn the page and you found like a 10 pages of comics. And then we return back to the bruise and the text. So I didn't expect like my fiction work will get their attention. But suddenly, strangely, it happened in, in 2014 after I published my second novel, Using Life. Okay, so you publish Using Life, and what happens, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in April of 2015, a 65-year-old man named uh, Hani Taufik files a case against you because he says that reading the excerpt of your novel, or reading an excerpt of your novel that appeared in I believe Akbar Al Adab, right? It, mm -hmm. So he gets a you know he gets this delivered to his house, or he picks up a copy, he reads it, experiences heart palpitations, sickness, and a drop in blood pressure, and this is the justification that he uses to bring a case against you in court. Right, and you can do that because like I I felt myself <laughs> at, when I first read you know read about that I was like wow that's crazy. So an individual citizen in Egypt if they find something that they read harmful to their health can actually bring a case against the author in court, even if it's fiction. Yeah, you could you could you could see how much like you have a a humanitarian law and and system in Egypt. But yeah, it's it's as you say it, like uh, the law gives the ability for any citizen if he if they say if they see so anything wrong, they could go and file a case. But then it's the prosecutor's job to look into this case and to decide is it real or not real. And in Egypt, as a journalist, we are used of, of this kind of cases. Like I received 
many cases like this before because of things that I wrote in the newspapers. You know, like you will write an article, someone will not like your article, so they will go to the police station and accuse you of something. And usually, like, prosecutor will, like, only deny everything, things like that. So, but what happened that in my case, the prosecutor decided to take the case. So when you enter the court, uh, your opposite is not this guy, Heine. Like, I, I never met him or I never saw him or and I don't know anything about him. Uh, but it was um, uh, the prosecutor who are you standing against and, and, and speaking against his accusation. So, okay, so you and your editor, uh, his name's Tarak Altar? Yes. Okay, so Tarak Altar is the editor of Akbar al-Adab, and you both get brought in for questioning by this prosecutor. Um, the charge, or the potential charge, is violation of public morals, <laughs> if I have that mm -hmm. right, uh, which, right. Seem, which seems like the, you know, a very broad charge or something. But um, this was unprecedented in the Egyptian criminal justice system for somebody to go to prison... Um, for a violation of public decency like this, correct? Like this, what this isn't something. When it comes to a, an artist, a writer of fiction, a visual artist, a filmmaker, this isn't something that there was precedent for in Egypt. Am I right? Yes, you are totally right. Like this law exists to fight like pornography. Like it's it's focus on pornography, and even if case of pornography, they will not send you into prison. Like they will arrest people who are selling like porno videotapes, for example, and they will go to the court and the judge will like give them fine. So it, in, in the whole history of Egypt, we there is no any cases that anyone went to the prison because of this law. And this law exists since 30s. Um, so we thought like the worst scenario that they will give us the maximum fine watch back then was like something that is equal to three or four thousand uh, American dollars. So you go in for this questioning. You're not even sure. Your attorney isn't even sure if you will be questioned uh, by the prosecutor because um, your editor, uh, Tariq Altar, goes first. And you happened to have the um, the bad fate to run into a very... Um, grim prosecutor. <laughs> uh, that's how I'm imagining this person anyway. Like this is a very a prosecutor that's very hostile um, to the cause of art uh, and, you know, inclined to throw the book at uh, someone for expressing themselves creatively. So can you just talk about just the process of learning about this charge? Like, I, I want to say you were on vacation when it happened, and then what it was actually like to, to be there for this questioning. Yeah, as, as you said, like my, my because it was, it was dangerous to enter uh, the prosecutor office. So my lawyer back then, they came with this idea that they will let Tariq Tahir enter first, and they will join him, and they will see how the prosecutor will react and deal with Tahir, and then they decide. And of course, they enter, and they found the guy is, is, is totally nuts, is out of his mind. 
like it took them hours and hours to explain to him that this is a fiction uh, because like he started he started the investigation of Tariq al-Tahir by saying well Ahmed Nagy published this article in your newspaper and Tariq will say well it's not article it's a novel he said okay whatever so in his article you see like in my novel it's written from uh, first person narrative perspective so in the novel it's like he say like I went to this party I smoked the hash I met this girl I went there you see so but for the prosecutor he did with it as it's an article that is brought by me so he was like asking Tahir questions like you know what uh, Ahmed here is convinced that he's smoking hash and Tahir will be like no it's it's a fiction so it took them like hours and hours to convince him and to explain to him what is fiction and what is non-fiction uh, so of course back then like my lawyer went out and told me well this is crazy and dangerous let's not speak to this guy and let's wait if they send the case to the court then we go to the court but it's dangerous to attend the investigation because he will try to get answers from you that will hurt you in, uh, in the, at the end of the day so we didn't we ended up not going to the prosecutor office we went to the court afterward uh, the first court uh, found them non guilt found us uh, not guilty so we got happy we got excited everyone celebrated but then the prosecutor they appealed this decision and we went to the Egyptian appeal court uh, which surprisingly we entered the we entered the court and we did the defense the lawyer to their defense but like it ended up the judge sentenced me for two years so you the judge tells you you have to go to a maximum security prison it's called Torah prison correct right in right. Egypt for two years of your life for writing a first person novel yeah, and this is a lesson for writers out there on dangerous of using first person. <laughs> right. Third person, always. It's a safer. Yeah. Uh, and so, can you, I mean, can you talk about what is going through your mind in that courtroom? I'm, I'm assuming they took you straight from the court to prison, right? You didn't get to go home and, like, gather your things, did you? No, we don't have this. You just like they will arrest you at the court, send you to the police station. That is um, your address is like you, you you connect to it, and then from this police station to the prison. And so, uh, what are you thinking? Like, I would be freaking out if I were you. I would be thinking like, like two years just is a is a very long time to be in a jail cell. But I'm also. I would also be terrified about safety. You know, it doesn't seem like prison is um, an ideal place to for a guy like me who's never been in a fight in his life to, to, to be hanging out. So, I mean, like, t talk about your mind state. What was your family doing? Like, how did how did this happen? Uh, like emotionally and and uh, like relationally for you. I was in denial, like until I heard. Uh, like until I was in the police station, I was in denial, and I thought, 
this is, should be a mistake and 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 something wrong because as i was telling you like this was the first time that happened in the history of egypt the reaction was 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 so was so big it's more than i expected like the reaction from writers and journalists in egypt and in arab world and even internationally uh, so i thought it's a mistake and like they are going to put me here for a couple of days and I will be out. But then they transfer me into the prison and I am in the prison. And even like for the first week in the prison, I always thought this is a mistake. It is like going to take like a couple of weeks until I, I believe after the first months, uh, I started to feel like, well, it's it seems and this looks like it's going to be much longer than I expected. Um, and uh, day by the day, you started to lose hope, to lose hope. And the most painful thing in the prison is hope, actually. Hope is the most torturing tool that I have deal with it, deal with it in the prison. You see, you woke up every day waiting for this message waiting for the moment, for the second, the guard or the soldier will come and open your cell door, call your name, tell you, back up your things, you are out. And you are in the prison, so you don't know what is happening outside. But you have hope, and hope continue torturing you. You sit and wait for hope uh, to deliver its promise. But it never happened. So when at five and at five in the prison, it's the time when like they will close the prison and like, yeah, now everyone go to their cell, stay there. You can get out. Nothing will happen like the day end at five. So you, you keep waiting until it's five uh, o'clock p.m. And then you say you discover, yeah, it's not today. So you you fall down into like a black hole until you until the night you can you 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 try to read you try to smoke many cigarettes as you can until you fall into sleep and when you go into sleep you started to think about dreams you wish to have many dreams as you can while you sleep because dreams is very important in general to any prisoners and especially important to Egyptian prisoners. You see, dreams is the only window and the gate prisoner is having to look outside of his cell. It's the only space where you will meet with your beloved one. And after time in the prison, you started to play this game with your subconscious you started to think yourself or believe that you could design or architect the dream. Like, for example, I used to play a game that if I miss someone, if I miss my fiance, Pakistan, my girlfriend, Yasmin, like I will think on her uh, like in the morning, but before going to bed, I will not think on her. But before going to the bed, of course, like in my cell, there wasn't drugs. But I was able to to have, you know, like Banadol, like Baracetamol. It's like Baracetamol drugs, but basically it put you into sleep. 
So I will take two bills and it create something like a void. Like you are not high, but you are in a sleepy mood. So you go into sleep uh, fast, easy way. And you had all this vivid colorful dreams. And I will design, I will work hard to design this dream in the hope to see like people that I miss and the places that I miss while you are in the prison. Egyptian prison also dreams is very special for them because are you familiar with Prophet Joseph story? Uh, no. The Bible? No. You know, Joseph was the son of Jacob. He want like his his brother wanted to get rid of him, so they throw him. Then he was enslaved in Egypt, and then he become like the vice king or something like that. Okay. Anyway, it's Bible, it's Bible story and Quran story about this prophet, uh, and it's in Quran. But basically, he entered the prison like he did something wrong, and they sent him in the prison, and he stayed in the prison for seven years. And what get him out of the prison? He has the ability. Uh, to interpret and explain to people their dreams. Like he was in the prison and he had to uh, cellmate. They came one day to him and they told him their dreams. So he told the first one, well, you are going to die. You are going out of this prison and you will become the king assistant. And if this happened, remember me and get me out. So in the reality, this is what happened. And in the Egyptian prison, like all the prisoners, they believe and they deal with themselves as they are Yusuf. Like even there was a joke, they will tell you like, you know, this prison was the prison that Prophet Joseph was present at. So everyone believed looking to their dreams, it will be the deliver man, the boss man. They will have this dream that will tell them about their future and when they will get out of their prisons. And uh, I have to admit that I played this rule, like like I feed it their fantasies. Uh, one of the things is, like, you know, I was in the cell surrounded by 60 people. It's a small cell, and we were more than 60 people in the same cell. So there is like a communication. Wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you. There were, there were 60 or 16? 60. 60 people in one cell? Yeah. Yeah, like six and zero, yes. Oh, my God. That's a lot of people in one. How big is this cell? How big is the cell? I would say it It was, uh, let's say, 30 or 40 meters and five meters. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of people in one small space. Yes, exactly. And everyone, like you, 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 the place that you sleep in uh, just will be like uh, two meter or one meter and 90 centimeter and like 30 or 40 meter wide. Hmm. And you mentioned, um, you know, in the excerpt from uh, Rotten Evidence, which is a memoir of your time in prison. You mentioned the importance that literature played in the lives of prisoners, because I want to say there's television, but there are only two government channels or something. You know, it's very limited in terms of what kind of content, but people could read 
And so mm-hmm. everybody pretty much was reading. There's a funny anecdote about, uh, you know, one of your fellow inmates um, who's not the most, like, naturally literary guy, like, raving about how funny Dostoevsky is. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that was pretty funny to me reading it. But um, I can imagine, like, I mean, if I try to imagine being in your shoes, if there were any books around, that's all I would be doing is just reading just to try to kind of get out of my own head. Well, yeah, but but access to to book wasn't that easy. Like I was shocked uh, when I arrived uh, at the cell to found like most of people are reading, and those are people. Most of them didn't even open a book before entering the prison, but now they are here in the prison and nothing else to do, besides like reading the newspaper and reading books, and. You, we will usually have like one newspaper every day, so you can't only read the newspaper. So most of them will go and read books. And for me, as I was telling you, since I was 16, I was living alone and I was like part of this blogger atmosphere and literature atmosphere. So I was always surrounded by writer and artist. But suddenly I entering this prison and I met for the first time with the regular normal reader okay like you know like the readers that we hear about him in this <laughs> paper when they tell you readers doesn't don't like this readers doesn't like this and it was an inter- interesting experience for me because they deal with me as the expert so they would love to always come uh, to me and exchange like opinion and telling me about the reaction and what they like and what they don't like and I have to say like I learned a lot from this discussion uh, because as we just say they don't have like this historical background that usually people have people who are inter- writers have uh, the guys that you mentioned the one who thought like Dostoevsky is funny I was shocked because like as you like I was still and then I become curious I asked him why do you think he's funny and he started to tell me like in most of his novel he will have those characters who's acting as a stupid and making funny things and funny uh, comments okay and and I go back to to Dostoevsky work and you found yeah there is this element of sarcasm in, in Dostoevsky books. There is this element of jokes. I mean, Dostoevsky used a lot of jokes in, in, in his work uh, in, in, in a metaphorical way. So you suddenly start to read and to look to literature uh, from another perspective. So what about, like, what kind of books were you reading? Uh, do you have books that really stand out to you that you... Uh, savored while you were uh, incarcerated? Uh, in, in the first two months, I wasn't allowed to have my book. Um, so I only allowed to use to borrow book from the prison uh, library and from other colleagues. And uh, of course, like I, I wanted to read my book uh, and because like in prison library and their book was mainly like best-selling books or religious books and stuff like that 
And then I was able to gain access, like they will let me have my box. But it wasn't that easy because the officers uh, who's, who's like running the prison uh, had to play the role of the censorship. And uh, sometimes my, like I, will, I will request like 10 books from my family and they will come and he will only like let two or three books, for example. Wait, is this, is uh, this Muhammad Bey, the, the chief of intelligence? Yes. Yes, Mohammed Beck, yes, the intelligence guy. At the okay, so just so listeners are clued in, like at the at the Torah prison where you were in uh, in jail, there's a guy who's basically like the head like there's some kind of like he reminds me of like the godfather or something. Like you can't get, <laughs> you can't get anything in prison if you're an inmate unless this guy approves it basically. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's but he's he's a his warden, he's a police officer. Right. So you have to figure out I think that was part of your learning curve when you were in jail is that you had to realize how the system worked. Like the 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 like the prison guards who would come to your cell or whatever. Those guys, they were just, you know, uh lower level employees. They weren't going to be able to make things happen. If you wanted to get something while you were in prison, it had to go through this guy, and you finally figured that out. Exactly, uh, it, it was like t- totally different social system, and it taking me time and money, a lot of money actually, to understand it and to be able to manipulate it. And you are doing all of this just to get one book. Like, like I remember, it took me like three weeks and i spent like 200 like 300 egyptian bound back then of course like we use we don't have money in the prison but we use cigarette as a currency and and i did all of this to get in the end uh umberto eco uh one of his novels uh, so you you do all this just because like all what you need, as you said, I'm, I'm like you, like if I'm in prison, all I need is just like I need books because books will help me to to will 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 separate me from from what is around me. You open the book, you start reading and you get out of the prison, you get out of the miserable condition that you are staying in and you get out of like your weariness and your anxiety about your future and when you're supposed to get out of this place. So let's talk about the conditions. Like you mentioned that there were 60 other inmates. I'm assuming they were all men in your cell. Yes. Um, is there any climate control? I mean, it's hot in Egypt in the summers. I mean, and you have that many people in a small space. Like, how was it sweltering in there? Were you okay? Like, uh, you know, I'm imagining it being really hot, but maybe I'm wrong. Of course, it, it, it was disaster. It was hot. Like, there was nights that I wasn't able to sleep because my mattress, which is like, was a very thin thing. Uh, was soaked by by my by my sweat. Like you are not able to speak, to sleep because your pillow is just like wet from your sweat. Uh, so 
the condition and of course the health condition was disaster there is cockroach there is uh, no no hygiene of course uh, the situation is bad like i went out of the prison and uh, i suffered from like several uh, health uh, uh, problems that took me like years to to recover from it and some of it, like, I still have it. Like, I still have this thing is that I got skin conditions. Um, so, yeah, you have, it's, it's the whole system is, is not healthy, of course. Do you have a dermatologist in your family who could help you with that skin condition? Or Yeah, this is actually what, what I did when I went out of the prison. And, <laughs> like, even in the, vis- in the visit, like, I, my brother is, is a heart surgery and he will be the one who like usually come and the visit and usually like i will tell him my condition and he will like try to bring the medicine also getting the medicine is not easy like you will get the medicine and they will not let you have the medicine oh. mahama bay the bay mohammed bay again yes <laughs> uh how did your family i mean your family visited you regularly um, or as regularly as they could, but this obviously must have been hard on them. Yeah, it was. It was very hard, but like uh, I have to say, like thanks to my my brother and sister, especially, and to uh, my girlfriend back then, who's now my wife, and she was one of my lawyers. Uh, they were able to 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 support them. I I have to say also the kind of solidarity that they saw from like people in Egypt and all over the world it, uh, helped a lot. It helped them a lot and it helped me. Uh, it really make a difference. You see, like the aim of the prison is to isolate you from the world, to make you think that nobody care about you, nobody think about you. You are in the prison and everyone forget about you and what you were doing doesn't work. So you start to question yourself. But when you go to the visit and they will tell you, for example, you know what, like Ben America gave you this prize or there is this letter that like hundred uh, of writers signed, including like Salman Rushdie or Han Bamuk, uh, Zadie Smith, all those. They think about you, they support you, they are in solidarity with you. This was real relief. This was like literally broking uh, the prison bars. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine just to have the knowledge that there were a lot of people out there speaking out on your behalf and calling your situation unjust and crazy. Like, I can see how that would be like a lifeline to sanity. In the absence of that, I could I could imagine being, like, as you stay in prison week over week, I could imagine how you could start to believe you belong there for some reason. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, um, it makes sense to me psychologically, like, how important it is to have that kind of advocacy and support. Sure. And, and this is the hardest part. Like as we were talking about his condition, it's it's you will adapt. You will be surprised in the prison of how much you as a human being and your body is able to adapt. Like I faced condition that I uh, like if you told me before entering the prison, can you take this? I would say no, I can't. Uh, but suddenly you are in the prison and you are surprised by how how your body is able to adapt. 
But like, for example, like what did you... But ad- mentally, mentally was the hardest part. Hmm. So mentally, but also just like the cockroaches and the heat and living in a room yeah, with 60 yeah. people. It's, it's, it's just, but as, a, as I'm telling you, you don't have other choice and you start to adopt. Like we have a say, for example, in the prison that they will tell you, cockroach is the closest friend to the prisoners. Hmm. So you start to deal with cockroach as they are, okay, they are your friends and they, they're sharing the space and the cell meet with you. Uh, disgusting, of course, but what other do you have? It's adoption, always adoption. So I want to talk about physical safety because that's always an issue um, in prison. And it certainly was the case in Torah prison with the guards coming in for inspections. And, you know, you write um, very powerfully about the humiliation of being a prisoner and the ways in which, um, you know, the prison guards and the power structure in the prison uses physical abuse and intimidation to break the will of prisoners. Mm-hmm. So what were your experiences like, I, you know, I, I guess what, what are so can you describe some of your experiences with that? And then were there also physical um, altercations among prisoners within the same cell? It seems like there would be with that many people in close quarters. Well, yeah, but like in my case, because uh, I was high profile case, they bought me on this special cell. So by being special that. Yes, I was surrounded by sixty people, but all of them were accused. Uh, they were like corrupted ex-military officer or corrupted ex-police uh, officer or corrupted judge or corrupted businessman or foreigner, American and the British or 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 European, for example. So our condition was bad. But comparing to other cell and other prisoner prisons in Egypt wasn't that bad at all. Uh, we had to say that uh, there is a minimum to enter our cell. Like usually, I will sit with the other cellmate, and most of them, like I was the young, like there was a time I was the youngest person in my cell, because most of them are very old, and there was a say that you can't enter our cell until you've been accused of stealing like five million dollars or above like if you steal just one or two million dollars you can't sit with us you can't enter our cell uh, uh so so i didn't have much fight with other uh intimates or cellmates cellmates uh, because in the end, also in generally in, in Egyptian prison, it's very rare to enter fight with with other cellmates. It's not like I didn't try the American prison still, but like it's not like you see it in in American TV. You enter the prison, and like everyone want to sleep with you, everyone want to punish <laughs> you. It's not like that in in Egypt, because if something that like that happen the guard will come and punish everyone. Everyone, not everyone, the whole prison. Like if if a fight like this happened in Egypt, for example, they could cut the water for three days from the whole prisons. Oof. You see what I mean? Yes. So, so the system of uh, governing the prison is a little bit different in, in, in Egypt. 
And I wasn't worried that much about my physical because they know I am a high-profile case and they know that if something happened to me, it could hurt them. And I remember when I entered the prison, they insisted that I take off all my clothes and like two or three doctors came and examined me and the I even have like an 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 old cut in, in my stomach coming from like an old surgery. They take a lot of picture of it and documented it because like they and when I asked why you are doing that, and they were like, "Well, we have to document everything because then when you go out, you don't go and say like you've been torturing or 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 whatever." Uh, you see. So I wasn't that much worried about my physical uh, because also they will manage to hurt you mentally. Like, for example, one of the things that usually will do, uh, you know, like Egypt is, is, is a Muslim country in the end, and we had like the Islamic uh, holidays, which is like three days. And it's it's like a lovely time, like any holiday all over the world. And it's a great time. It's an Eid holiday. Uh, but in the prison, uh, they will close the cell. You are not allowed to leave your cell. And they will cut the water. They will only let you have a water and, and the pipe for one hour. And they will do this because, like, you stay the whole holiday, the whole three days, thinking and waiting for the water to come. You are waiting. You are waiting for the water to come, to use it to use the bathroom, to to wash your face, and to fill your water bottle. So you stay like the three days, just waiting and thinking of water. And this was like way. This was like their technique to control you, and and to affect you mentally. Damn, that's intense. Yep. And then you also did see, though, on some of these inspections, like the prison guards um, getting violent with prisoners. Like they'd, they'd hit people um, and intimidate people physically. Of course, of course. In this inspection, like they will use dogs. Uh, they, will do, they will use dogs to search for like drugs and other stuff and to sweeten other intimates. They, they will punish. There will be violence. Even me, after I left the prison, like, in Egypt, like it's just like you don't. They will not open the prison gate and let you out. No, they will take you from the prison to a police station, and from this police station to another police station, and from this police station to the prosecutor office, and from the prosecutor office to the police station. So basically, it took me like seven days. Like I went out of the prison, and for seven days they were just like moving me from place to place. And when you are moving, they are moving you from a place, from police station to police station. People in this police station, they don't know who you are and they don't really care. For them, you are just like the others. And in several cases, like, uh, they, they, I was victim of, like, violence, like kicking or punishing or, or, or punishing you on your face or in your head from back or kicking you. And they were not doing this, not specifically against me, but this is how they usually deal with the people in this place. Hmm. And 
One of the things, I mean, along with reading books while you were in prison, and you were in prison for a total of, what, 10 months before you got out? Yes, exactly 301 day. Okay. <laughs> Do you have the hours? How many hours was it? <laughs> I didn't count the hours, but I, I count the days, of course. Yeah. So um, you also did some writing. And mm-hmm. uh, like one of the most moving parts about uh, the excerpt that I read of uh, Rotten Evidence is the story of the rhinoceros. Um, can you, I, I, I don't have a clear, like a totally clear sense of the rhinoceros in terms of his physical appearance or who he is. Why, why, why was he called the rhinoceros? Uh, just the nicknames that I give him. Um, and I give him because like we, we used to call him like, uh, because he was dead inside. He has a dead eyes. He was dead inside guy. And uh, this guy, he was accused of stealing $400 million. Oof. But he used to say, no, they are just like $200 million. And I'm not going to give them back. And he did all this heist using his father's name. Like basically... He, he did a startup company that's supposed to deal in Forex or in stock market. Uh, but in the end, like, he ended up collecting money from people and, and taking it. And he used all the legal documents. He used his father's name. So when they first tried to reach out to him, to try to arrest him, they first arrest his father, and then they, they were able to arrest him. So basically, he was in, in, in the prison, and his father, who was like a very old guy, uh, he was like 80, 77 or 79 years old. And all what he do is just like returning the money back, and they will let you out, and he will refuse. And I never saw this guy so yani, reflect any kind of emotion towards anything, seriously. Until one day... Um, I woke up at 2 a.m. at night and I went to the toilet, to the restroom, and I found him standing in the dark crying. I went to him and I asked him, are you fine? Why are you crying? Is something wrong? It was the first time to see him crying. And I was shocked, like I thought, oh, something big happened. And he was like, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Don't worry. So why at 2 a.m.? Why are you crying in the night? It just, uh, it just, I was reading this this book, this novel, by Doctor Khawla Hamdi. It's called My Heart. In my heart, there is a Hebrew little girl, and it's it's so good. It it's it's so lovely. It make me cry. Like I left the book in my bed, and I came here because, like, even when I look to the book cover, I remember lines and 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 paragraph from it. So I cry again, and I was totally shocked like this is this is a guy who's like totally criminal he really doesn't have any heart like there is one day i saw like his father had a heart attack and he was dying and he was standing uh, 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 far away like everyone was trying to help his father he was standing far away continue smoking his cigarette okay but suddenly he was standing here at the toilet at 2 a.m. crying because he was reading a novel which is 
literally, it's like one of this novel, like, I don't want to say teenager novels, but, you know, like, this kind of remont, rem, uh, romantic, like, novels, like Daniel Steele style, but you add to it a little bit of Sufism, of, Suf, of Sufism, and, like, uh, like it's, it's, it's just romantic novel, really, kitsch novel. And just he was reading this novel, and he was crying because of it. Hmm. And what was the name of the book again? It's called Fikalbi Unsa Abreya. I think the translation, it, it, it's never, it, it didn't translate into English, and I don't think it will ever translate. But it's called, the title will be In My Heart, A Little Hebrew Girl. Okay. And it's basically <laughs> supposed to be a love story between a Lebanese guy and and Hebrew Israeli girl. Okay, Got but it. it's written in a very cliche way, like you, like I tried to read it, and I couldn't seriously. That's fa- that's fascinating. And so the rhinoceros, his father was in the same cell with you guys. Yes, and yes. his father had a heart attack, and the guy could not be moved to even attend to him. He just continued smoking his cigarette. He was like, "I will finish my cigarette and come see what is happening." But the the. Uh... In my heart, a Hebrew girl broke him down. <laughs> broke him down. <laughs> and so, but this this was like this did lead to a meaningful epiphany for you around your life purpose, did it not? I mean, you describe it as the the kind of the the moment that you decided to really become a writer and to to commit yourself to being a writer, whereas before, you know, your interests were maybe a little bit less defined. Exactly, because. This was like in, in my nine or eight uh, months in the prison. And I started to think on, on the future. I started to say, does it worth it to to to, to stay here like for, for six months because of novel? Um, and I started to think what I'm going to do when I, when I go out. If I'm going to continue writing, stop writing, move to another career, I didn't have a clue. Until like this accident happened and uh, it surprised me, it's ama- it amazed me. I started to think, why this happened? Why he was crying? What in this novel? What what is hidden into into novels and into literatures? What is this power that literature has that has the ability to reach out for the, for for a guy like this heart and squeeze it? And um, after several days of thinking in, in this situation and talking with him, like next day I will go to him and I would sit with him alone and I would like in, investigate and, and ask him. He will he will push like, he will tell me like, try to read it. I told, And I keep telling him, well, I try, but I can't. It's, it's totally bad prose. And he was like, but you see, like this sentence, and he would read me the sentence that like totally broke his heart. And for me, it was like a totally a cliche, uh, uh, normal sentence. Like, you know, like, you know, one of this a cliche sentence, like, I, uh, you are beautiful because like you are a white flower or something like that. But for him, <laughs> this was like, Oh my God! This is this is this affect me. This like squeeze my heart, and I start to question all of this, and and then I become with the conclusion, I'm here because of writing, and uh, I'm here for a purpose, and it looks like 
I must become a writer finally. And since then, I I decided to dedicate my 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 big time of my 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 most time and most power into focusing on on writing and deal myself and identify myself as a writer. So let's talk about you getting out of prison because you got out, as you said, after 301 days, you were sentenced to spend two years in prison, but external pressure, the, the public response, uh, groups like PEN America, you know, all the different authors from around the world who stood up and spoke out in your defense, um, that pressure ended up working. Well, it it ended like I don't know, and and I'm not sure if it ended up working to get me out of the prison. Uh, it helped, of course, um, but after I get out of the prison, I was banned for a year and a half from leaving the country. But it helped me to recover, to heal from the experience. Uh, without this solidarity, for sure. Uh, I was going to be in another place. It helped me to recover and to heal and to found my path back. After I went out of the prison, me and my girlfriend, Yasmin, we married. Um, leaving and continuing Egypt was, was a hard choice. It even was impossible for us to continue. So we we decided to try to move outside uh, she got suddenly she got like um, a scholarship to study uh, master her master degree in law at Syracuse University. So she moved to Syracuse University. The plan was to join her afterwards. I went to the airport and they stopped me in the airport. They told me that I am banned from traveling. It took me like a year and a half to be able to leave the country. Finally, I left the country and I was able to come and arrive to America exactly in August 2018. And so you, you reunited with Yasmin in New York? Yes, in Syracuse, in Syracuse, actually. We stayed in Syracuse like for several weeks back then. She was, by, by that time, it was like after a year and a half. So basically she finished her master's degree and uh, she got this job in D.C. So we stayed in Syracuse for like two weeks. Then we moved from Syracuse to D.C. Okay, and then now you're in Las Vegas. And now, yes, so when I enter the United States, I enter it uh, using a tourist visa. Um, I had I had dealed with a lot of people at the American Embassy in, in Egypt before. I worked with them in several projects related to culture and, and literature and stuff like that. So they helped me also to get like this touristic visa and I arrived here in this touristic visa but touristic visa only allow you to stay here for six months so the six months was finishing and uh, under Trump administration everything was with visa and the immigrants was very hard but thanks to Black Mountain Institute here at uh, Las Vegas University they offered me this fellowship, uh, City Asylum Fellowship, 
And the most important thing is that they helped me to waive my touristic visa and to get an O1 visa. Wow. Well, that's awesome. And so now you've been in Las Vegas for how long? Uh, next April, it will be two years. And what do you think of Las Vegas? That's like a... I love it. I don't want to leave ever, ever. Yani, I will be sad and leaving it. Like I just was telling Yasmin two days ago, like I believe if we had to leave Las Vegas, I I will be more sad than when I was sad when I left Cairo. I, I love the city, really, because it's it's American city, but in the same time, it, uh, it doesn't follow the American city's laws. One of the things that we love here about the city is that it doesn't sleep like it could be any time. And if you want anything, you can get it. Uh, of course, like last year was was a harsh and disaster. And it made me feel sad about like the whole world, but especially about Las Vegas. Uh, basically, the last year you see like the city is is. It's just like said, everything, everything is closed and and even it's open, you go there and no one's there. But before that, the city is amazing. It's full of, of music and show and entertainment and it's always open. Uh, it's free. There is there is there is the visitor who usually come in Vegas and deal with it as like an adult playground. And there is the local people who are totally amazing, nice people. Um, one of the things that I love about Vegas that it's not a judgmental environment. You know, like people are used of crazy things here. So people doesn't judge you. People are familiar with like different uh, difference between between difference in, in culture and stuff like that. Also, the literature and the artist community here is just like thriving. Like I, I love it here. Like I imagine, if I were in New York, it it will be hard to understand the culture and the literature system. But suddenly here, because of BMI guys and because like Vegas community, step by step, it's easy like to establish relationship and to discover writer and to discuss your work with them and to read and enjoy your work. So I love it. And uh, I'm very happy to be part of this community that's growing up in the city. So you have written a memoir about your experiences, um, you know, in, in being imprisoned in Egypt. It's called Rotten Evidence. Um, that book is like you're looking for a, a publisher in English. It's been excerpted in The Believer, but the full book um, has not yet been published in uh, North America, correct? Right. That's that's the case. Um, and we are trying now, like me and my translator, Catherine Holtz, we are trying to reach out for, for publisher and agents. Um, but... Um, the whole American publishing system is totally confusing for me, and it's it's suddenly step by step you start to discover it, and because it has a lot a lot of money, billion of money, so it's so uh, competitive industry. I don't have an agent, so sometimes like I'm used 
in Europe or in Egypt, it's it's more easy. Like you wrote the text, you send it to different publishers. One of them will reply, say, well, I like your text. I'm going to publish it. Let's have a deal and you meet a deal and that's it. But here you will send the email to the publisher. The email will bounce back with a reply saying, well, we don't accept uh, 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 any submission without an agent or solicitors, a submission or something like that. So we we are we are trying now to reach out for different publisher and different agents and we wish to found um, <clears throat> a publishing deal for the whole book soon and then aside from the memoir are you working on any other fiction well yeah besides the memoir i published another novel uh, called uh, and tigers to my room it was published in arabic and late, uh, lately, um, I signed a contract. Uh, I gave like the movie right for this novel uh, for uh, a production house in Brooklyn. I have been working with a filmmaker, Malika Worrell, who's British but living in New York. And she she doesn't read in Arabic, but like I told her about the novel, she loved it. She hired a translator to translate like the novel just for her and she loved the novel and now she bought the movie right and she want to make an adaptation uh, of it we just got like an um, a small fund from Sundance Festival and now she has like a production company uh, and a script writer um, so this is also another project which is I'm excited about it. Uh, it's going to be a movie, but also it's the same problem. It's crazy. Like I have the novel translated into English uh, or most of it, but and there is an American company who's he, who want to make it a movie, but I don't have a publisher for it. Hmm. Well, I have a, I have a feeling it's going to change, and I am uh, enormously grateful for your time and uh, the the um you know generous uh, responses you gave and talking about all that you've been through it's quite a lot and it's something that shouldn't happen anywhere you know anybody who is making creative art should never have to suffer through what you've been through um simply because they've expressed themselves um in a novel or in any media so um kudos to you for persevering and uh, I really enjoyed the excerpt that I read in The Believer. I think it's a, a, a really beautiful piece of writing, and it's a story that people need to hear. So I wish you the best, and I look forward to uh, following your career and seeing what unfolds for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your kind words and for having me, Brad. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Ahmed Naji. His memoir is called Rotten Evidence, Reading and Writing in Prison. Let's hope it gets into print here in the States, uh, ASAP. You can find him online at AhmedNaji.net. You can uh, follow him on Twitter. His handle is at AhmedNajiTW. Again, that memoir is called Rotten Evidence. You can read uh, a big excerpt from it in The Believer magazine. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. Nearly 700 conversations 
with today's leading writers. It's all there for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you want to tip your server, please do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Is that what it is? Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at other PPL.com. If you want to get some other people gear, you have a couple of options. You can get t-shirts, sweatshirts, or tank tops by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just click on the shirt over in the left sidebar. You can't miss it. There is also now, over at Patreon, uh, a loyalty program. If you're like a super fan of the show and you really want to get behind it, you can do that and you'll get, over the course of a year, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker. What else? There's something else I'm forgetting. But you get stuff. Other people stuff. If you're interested in that, go uh, over to the Patreon at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Go get the app. It's a good app. It's available wherever apps are available. Next week on the program, I'm going to be in conversation with Candace Jane Opper. Had a great conversation with her about her superb new book. It is called Certain and Impossible Events. It won a big memoir prize judged by Cheryl Strayed. I can't wait to introduce Candace Jane Opper to you next week on the program. All right? Okay. Hang in there. <laughs>